Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. As I was thinking about what to preach, um, of course, you know that Tyler and I set our sermons for the entire year, and we had planned for We Are the Sermon Day to be today. And uh, we we're preaching on Sunday mornings uh, the words of Jesus. And it struck me that the last two years on We Are the Sermon Day, I had preached from the Sermon on the Mount about letting our light shine. I thought, I probably don't need to try to make it three for three and do that a third year in a row. And I couldn't help but think that a lot of the things we do on We Are the Sermon Day are, we sometimes say, a little more labor-intensive. Some aren't. We try to make this where anybody can be involved uh, as much as possible. And so some things are physically easier than others, but all of them are service because all of them take some of ourselves And we all understand that it's not really service until we have given of ourselves. There's a sacrificial nature to it. There's a a, a giving of ourselves part to it. And it made me think that some of these things that we put out there for sign-up sheets and and people sign up to do are, are pretty difficult, maybe stepping out of our comfort zone. It made me think, what do we do when we see something that's difficult? What do we do when God gives us a difficult task? And that's why we've chosen this morning for our text, Acts chapter 9. As we're studying the words of Jesus, we come to this text in Acts chapter 9. You have a conversation between Ananias, this man who in verse 10 is called a disciple. And keep that little thought in mind because it's going to come into play many times throughout this lesson. The simple fact given to us that he's called specifically a disciple. But then what Jesus specifically tells this man to do is one of the most difficult commands really found for any individual in the New Testament, given specifically to someone. How do we handle it? When we come across something in Scripture that we see as hard, difficult, out of our comfort zone, Now, I know that Jesus does not directly talk to us as he did to Ananias through this vision in Acts chapter 9. But there are still certain things we see in Scripture at times that are hard for us to do, depending on our circumstances, depending on our personality, depending on our histories. How are we supposed to handle it? And so what we want to do this morning is just walk through those seven verses we read together a few moments ago and break that down to four things that will help us see how we should react when we come to a difficult command of God. In the first place, notice the specific command that God gave. One thing that we should be very grateful for when we read the scriptures, but also one thing we should always notice is that God doesn't waste words. God is very clear in what he says, and that is especially true when God gives a command. Now, we can choose because God has given us the ability to choose. We can choose to ignore the command, 
We can choose to twist the command and make it harder or try to put a little bit of the world and a little bit of Bible in it. But as far as actually just reading a command of God, they're not that hard to figure out. You might think of just some very specific ones. How many religious world tell us that baptism is not essential to salvation? That's just something that that some of you folks teach. When Jesus himself clearly said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, I can choose to ignore that or I can choose to twist that. But that's really hard not to just read and see what it says. It's really difficult. How many people in our world today are pushing for females being allowed to have overseer roles, leadership roles the Bible doesn't give? And they say, well, that was just a traditional thing. When you come to passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications of elders are there, they're called overseers. And it says an overseer is to be the husband of one wife. That's kind of hard to miss. You can twist it any way you want to, but it's hard to miss. How difficult is it to see a command like the one found in Mark 16 and verse 15? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Now, I can choose to ignore that command or say it's for somebody else, but I can't miss it. I cannot misrepresent what that says. And I say all that to come back to Acts chapter 9 and see just how specific God was, or Christ was, when He gave this commandment, this direction to Ananias in the vision. If you read Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, you see the command as it's given. Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now you may count these differently. But as I look at that command just in a very cursory way, I see that there are at least five specific things that God gives to Ananias in that commandment. He tells him the actions. You rise, you go, and then you speak to Saul. He gives him the place, just in case it's, you know, rise and go somewhere. No, no, you go to Straight Street, and if that's not specific enough, you go on Straight Street to the house of a man named Judas. So it's impossible to miss where he's supposed to go. He gives the, the, the person who's going to be there. There's a man there named Saul. And just in case that's a generic enough name, it's the Saul who's from Tarsus. You have what will be happening. Saul is praying. He, and the implication is he will be praying when you get there. But he has been praying. So just in case Saul of Tarsus is specific enough, it's the Saul of Tarsus who's been praying. And then also he's told what Saul already knows. He's been shown that someone named Ananias will come in, lay his hands on him, and so on and so forth. Now, Ananias could have chosen to ignore that command, I guess. He could have tried to figure out some way to, to, to twist it around, but there is no way he could miss the specific nature of what God told him to do. And again, you can count differently, but there are at least five specific things that, Ananias, that, excuse me, that God gives to Ananias through this command. And remember, Ananias had been told, we, we had been told, I should say, that he was a disciple, back up in verse 10. He was a follower of Christ. The Lord was not giving some command to just some random person out there. He was giving one to a follower, and he was specific in it. Here's my simple point as we think about the idea of the specific command. We may not always grasp the reasons behind why God gives a certain command. We may not specifically understand all the implications when we we read a command for the first time in Scripture or hear someone preach about it or teach a Bible class about it. But when we see a command, especially in the New Testament, God never wastes words. 
We should be grateful that God tells us what He expects. Be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's not hard to read and figure out. But what I love about Acts chapter 9 is the humanness of it. Because you see the specific command. But then the second place you see the disciples' resistance. You have Ananias. You have this man who's given this command. And I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, but if I can kind of paraphrase Ananias' response, it's basically, are you kidding me? Now, I know, I I don't mean that in any disrespectful way because he calls Jesus Lord. He is being respectful in this. But he is absolutely resistant to this command. He's, He's fearful because of it. And to me, there's something very interesting about his response. Did you notice that the text does not tell us that he had ever, that Ananias had ever been with Saul? I have heard about this man. As a side lesson here, if you can kind of do a little mini lesson with me. How often do we not want people to deal with us based on what they've heard about us? And instead want them to come to us. And how often though do we, are we want to say, well I've heard about that person. I've heard about that group instead of going to that person or to that group. Now it is true that what Ananias was told ended up being absolutely right. But I think it's very interesting that he goes by what he has heard. Instead of going to Saul or having researched Saul or something to prove this. Just end of many lesson. What Ananias had been told was true. I've heard about this man. That he's been disrupting the saints in Jerusalem. And he's coming here to do the same thing. And you want me to go talk to him? We know how this story turns out. We know what becomes of Saul or Paul. We know the great missionary he becomes. We know that everything turns out okay as far as Ananias and Saul in that house. We know all that, that happened there. And because we know how this turns out, and we know everything turns out you know, for the good, for the better, we can look at it and say, man, Ananias, what in the world? Why don't you just go? But folks, if God had given me this command, I'm not too sure I would have waltzed out the front door whistling a happy tune either. Ananias, from a human standpoint, has every right to be scared of this assignment that God has given to him. We can understand his hesitation. You know, one of the powerful things about Scripture is that Scripture doesn't sugarcoat the heroes. I think it's one of the secondary proofs of inspiration. It's not a primary proof. It's one of those things that's secondary because you have these wonderful people, but the Bible does not sugarcoat their lives. You think about Moses. And man, he's the great leader. We teach our kids about Moses, the great leader and great lawgiver. But do you remember before he goes into Egypt, that conversation he has with God, and he comes up with every excuse in the book? The Bible doesn't skip over that part of his life. The Bible's willing to say that Moses was absolutely terrified to to go into Egypt and stand before Pharaoh. You think about Naomi in the book of Ruth. The one who, when when all this difficulty befell her and she comes back home, she tells the people of her hometown, don't don't call me Naomi, a a name that means pleasant. But instead, you call me Mara or Mara, a word that means bitterness or bitter. And she even says, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Bible doesn't jump over that. 
The Bible tells us this woman is, is ripped apart in her heart by what's going on, and she even thinks God has specifically done it to her. You think of John the Baptist, the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away his sins of the world. What a wonderful man. But where is he in Luke chapter 7? He's in prison. And what's he doing? He's sending messengers to Jesus to say, to ask him, are you really the one or should we send for another? Or should we look for another? Excuse me. Should we look for another? This is the guy who said, behold the Lamb of God. Now he's going, I'm not so sure right now. The Bible doesn't jump over that. And here you come to Acts chapter 9 and you have a man who's called a disciple in verse 10. And the Bible does not jump from telling us he's a disciple to boom, he follows the command. The Bible tells us, He is absolutely terrified and even is willing to say to to Christ, again paraphrasing, you've got to be kidding. There's no way that I'm the right one for this task. May I ask, have you ever done that? Now I know Jesus does not speak to us through visions like he did to Ananias. I'm not saying that. But have you ever seen a command in Scripture, a command in the New Testament, and pushed back simply because it was hard, it would make me step out of my comfort zone, it could cost me a relationship or it could strain a relationship or any other number of reasons. Now, this is not a, a plea for every Christian to sign up for every ministry, every program. But the idea simply is, when I see a command in Scripture to be followed, is my natural reaction to push back or is to step in and obey? Ananias, from a very human standpoint, pushed back. He was resistant to this specific command. But another reason I like Acts chapter 9, and the reason we're studying on Sunday mornings as we think about the words of Christ, is because in the third place, you have the Lord's perspective. Did you notice that when we're told of Ananias' response, if you're looking at Acts chapter 9, in most translations, the very first word in verse 13, after the, after the command is given, the first word is the word but, and then Ananias gives his, his resistance to this. And then what's the first word of verse 15 in most translations? But. You're about to have a total change of perspective here. Because one of the very few times in the New Testament, you have Christ giving a command, and then, if you please, peeling back the curtain and showing the why of the command. Most of the time in the New Testament, we are simply told what to do, and somewhere else in the New Testament, we might find a reason behind it. But most of the time we're just said, you know, for example, he who believes is baptized will be saved. We don't have all the, what does belief mean and what does baptism mean. We're just told what to do. Here, you have Ananias given a specific command, and now when he shows some resistance, God rolls back the curtain a little bit, if you please, and says, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to show you why you are the one, but really why Saul is the one, And what God does is give a perspective that there is no way Ananias could have known. He gives three things at least. First of all, he shares perfect knowledge. Saul is my chosen, some translations, vessel, some translation, instrument. Wait a minute. We're talking about Saul of Tarsus. He's your chosen instrument, your chosen vessel. What did Ananias know about Saul? What he had heard. Persecutor. He's coming to Damascus to do the same thing. He's a rabble. That's what he knew. He might have known a few other things because Saul was a very good teacher among Jews. He might have known a few things, but he didn't know everything. What did God know? What did Christ know? Everything. See, Christ's knowledge is not limited 
by just what we already know or what He already knows. You and I can take guesses at the future based on you know, some calculations or things we might know, but we don't know. God is not limited by time. God sees the past, the present, and the future all at once. Now, how that works, I don't have a clue. But God is not limited by just things that have already happened. But God also knows more about Saul than just his reputation. He knows that Saul has just the right kind of zeal. He knows that Saul has just the right kind of religious background. He knows that Saul knows the law inside and out. He knows that Saul can handle persecution. He knows all these things that Ananias simply does not know. He knows perfect knowledge. Then he also reveals his sovereignty. I'm going to send Saul, he's my chosen vessel, my chosen instrument, to the Gentiles? Wait a minute. This is the guy who's wanting to keep Judaism pure. That's why he's persecuting Christians. He thinks they're a, a rogue sect, for lack of a better way of putting it. He, he thinks Christians are, are, are tearing apart Judaism, so he's going to put that away so that, so that Judaism, the Jewish religion, can remain pure. And not only am I going to send him to Jews, I'm going to send him to outsiders, to Gentiles? Yeah. Why would God do that? That was a lot of reasons, of course. But one reason he says this to Ananias, or reveals it to Ananias, is to remind Ananias, I'm not just God of the Jews. I'm sovereign. I'm God over all Gentiles, kings, and here called the children of Israel, the Jews. And then God also reveals his realism. Do you not find it curious that Christ reveals to Ananias that Saul would know he would be persecuted? I find that kind of an interesting little revelation here to Ananias. He does not just say, he's my chosen instrument. He's going to go before Gentiles and kings and Jews, and he's going to be a great preacher, or he's going to be a great missionary, or many will be converted. because it's not what he says. He will suffer because of the name. God would not choose Saul and then tell him everything's going to be a primrose path to glory. Every time you and I read Scripture, we need to see the realism that God reveals. You want an example of it? John chapter 10 and verse 10. What did Jesus say? I am come that they might have life and what? Have it more abundantly or have it to the full. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Does that make sense to anybody else? How both of those things can be true unless we understand that God is real with us. God understands that an abundant or full life does not just mean smiles and giggles all the time. An abundant and full life is the inner life that has that peace that passes understanding, that has a joy that no one else can understand when the world seems to be falling apart. But it also means that sometimes I'm going to suffer, I'm going to go through difficulties because I'm desiring to be godly, because I'm wanting to live for Christ, and that somehow leads to an abundant life. I don't necessarily know how it works, but I know God's promised it. And here, Christ tells Ananias, Saul knows, or will know, that he will suffer for the name. And so God, or Christ, rolls back the curtains a little bit 
Ananias is a wonderful man. I have no doubt about that. But there's no way he could have known all of this. All he knew was Saul's reputation. All he knew was what he had been told. All he knew was, was the morning news, if you please. God knows everything. And so you have the Lord's perspective of this. It's a whole lot bigger. It's a whole lot more full in reality. That's what our service to God is all about. It's really what a day like today is all about, to be honest with you. I may think that all I'm doing on a certain day is visiting somebody in a nursing home or maybe on a different day, maybe I'm just visiting a hospital or maybe I'm just sending a card or maybe I'm taking a meal to somebody or maybe I'm mowing somebody's yard that can't do it for themselves or whatever it is. But that's what I know. I can't see everything God sees. I can't see every interaction, everything that could lead to that person wanting to know about more about Christ or wanting to be more encouraged in faith. I can't know that. And so I serve to the glory of God, hoping He will use those things to teach, to encourage, to build up someone. And thankfully, the text as we're ending it this morning ends with the proper response. We're not even getting in really to the conversion of, of Saul as found later in Acts chapter 9. But I love how the section ends in verse 17 because you've, you've seen Ananias receive the command. You've seen him be fearful. Now he's been given heaven's perspective, the Lord's perspective, and his response becomes the proper one. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And, of course, it goes on from there. But just from that one short sentence, that's enough to show us this man did what was right. We don't have Christ speaking to us today through visions or signs or dreams or some still voice in the night. So what can that possibly have to do with us? I hope you already see where we're going here. It's because through the New Testament, Christ is speaking to us. It is God speaking to us when we read the New Testament. And it also, it does give us heaven's perspective. And it may not be as specific as what Ananias received. Go to that person and say these things and do those things. The New Testament may not be that specific. It may not say, hey, you on Tuesday go next door and talk to that person person about it may not do that but God has clearly revealed his will for all of mankind and his will is that all come to a knowledge of the truth and his will is that we never miss an opportunity to do good to all the question for me to answer is will I depart and enter the house when I see a command will I be reticent or willing. I, I hope you signed up for something this afternoon. If if not, there's still spots available. And this, this sermon is supposed to be just a commercial. But I want us to think about this. As we think about our We Are the Sermon Day, I wish I and I wish we could get a glimpse of what God could do through us. Because I don't know if I've got a glimpse of that. Sometimes all I see is, and, and my wife will agree with this, I think Tower and Chris will agree with this because they work in the office with me, sometimes all I see is the, the management side of stuff. Let's get the sign-up sheets, let's get the budgets, let's get the, all that stuff, all the details, all the make sure this is done, make sure that's done, make sure things are measured. And all, all. Sometimes that's all I see, and that's something I've got to work on. But I've got to catch a glimpse and I think we have to catch a glimpse of what God could do if even just a cup of cold water were given in His name. Not to our glory, 
to His glory. If even just sending a card, and I say just with quotation marks around it, or going and visiting someone in a nursing home who doesn't even know you're there, was done to His glory. And I'm going to give you a preview of tonight's devotional. So just be ready. You still have to stay awake through tonight's devotional, but here's your preview. So long as when we do those things, we're actually willing to say something for Christ. I know what, the, what people say. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I, I get that. But folks, people see how much we care. Do we ever say anything? Do we ever say anything? Yeah, there are commands I read in the New Testament that I think, I, I can do that. And there are other ones I read and I think, I know what it says. But you know, with my circumstances or my relationships or where I'm at or the, the age I'm at or whatever, that, that's, that's hard. And Ananias shows us that it's okay to push back a little until we see, you know what, God's got a whole lot bigger perspective than I'll ever have. And so my response needs to simply be, God said it. So I'm going to rise and enter the house. I'm going to do it. And sometimes that's hard. For somebody or some people here this morning, it may even be he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And you think, yeah, but that's not what my family taught me growing up. That's not what the church I grew up going to. That's not what they teach. But it's what Christ said. And none of us in here will tell you, oh, that's just easy to do. When you have so many things in your mind, in your past, in your history. But Christ said it. So it's time to rise and go to the door. Or as a Christian, maybe there are things you, you know the New Testament says. And you do most of it, but you know, that, that part over there, that's, that's for somebody else. Or that's not for me right now. That's just hard. And it's time to get some encouragement. Or it might be time to get some forgiveness. To ask for prayers. And to say, you know what? As hard as it is, if Christ says that my natural reaction is not going to be to push back, but to do. Who needs to make a difficult decision this morning? Because everyone in this room is willing to pray with you, encourage you, and walk with you. If you'll come to the Savior, as together we stand and as we sing.